You are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2007. Today's episode is titled, Biblical Worldview of Business. It is easy for most of us to acknowledge that there is a spiritual dimension to life, particular in regard to personal, family, and church life. But what about business? Business seems to take place exclusively in the physical realm. Buying, selling, producing, and servicing all happen in a very tangible way. How could the intangible spiritual realm connect to the tangible world of business? Keep in mind that God, a spirit being, created the physical universe. A biblical worldview of business embraces this truth. The tangible results experienced in business are all driven by the intangible spirit realm, which is why lasting success in business only happens when organizations line up with the philosophy, values, and principles consistent with God's character and nature. We're going to talk about biblical worldview of business today. And to get started here, every organization has a worldview. Now, we don't think about this because we think of people having worldviews. We don't think about organizations having worldview. But organizations have a worldview. And a worldview is a system of thought that drives your actions. And I just want to give you a couple of examples of it. How many of you uh, love Starbucks? There's at least one unhappy lady uh, that went to Starbucks recently, and the reason she's unhappy is on her cup was this message. Why in moments of crisis do we ask God for strength and help? As cognitive beings, why would we ask something that may be a figment of our imaginations for guidance? Why not search inside ourselves for the power to overcome? After all, we are strong enough to cause some of the catastrophes we need to endure. So, do you all see that as a message that's not Christian? Does everybody get that? Well, why is that on a Starbucks cup? Anybody know? Starbucks has adopted a policy. They, they want to, in their words, they want to promote open, respectful conversation about a wide variety of, of issues and individuals. So they don't have, have no problem putting that on their cup. Here's another thing they put on their cup. This is a quote, and these are basically things that their uh, customers send in through the website. So one customer sent this in. See if you can figure out who this person is. My only regret about being gay is that I, I repressed it for so long. I surrendered my youth to the people I feared when I could have been out there loving someone. Don't make that mistake yourself. Life is too short. And that was published on the cup, a Starbucks cup. And um, it, was, it wound up uh, down in uh, Waco, Texas. Uh, and there were some people at Baylor University who didn't appreciate that. So they protested at Starbucks, and Starbucks' attitude was, well, we're into free conversation. Starbucks is adopting a worldview that we might call pluralism. Pluralism is, is the view that every, every person's perspective is acceptable. So come, let's have a conversation here, what you have to say or what you have to say. And so there you have a, an example of how a company has a worldview. Now, if you were um, in Colorado... You might uh, visit a bank up there called Premier Bank. It's in downtown Denver. And this bank is um, started by Eric Wang. He's chairman and CEO. And here, here's his philosophy. You must study it broadly, and then you must investigate it in detail, and then deliberate on it carefully, then discern it clearly, and practice it universally. Now, you know where he got that? Got it from Confucius. His basic philosophy in driving the bank is coming from Eastern, Eastern myth- mythology. Now, there's a lot of truth in what he had to say there. Because the reality is in any worldview that exists that has any kind of support at all, there's always a kernel of truth. 
because nobody totally believes lies. So what you have out there is organizations of all types, whether they be banks, Starbucks, and I have other illustrations here, that, that they all adopt a perspective of reality, and they live out of that perspective of reality, and that's what a worldview is. So what is the common worldview of business? How many of you are in business? Okay, most of you are in business. So you, you are in the environment, and you look around and say, what is the driving worldview of my business? What would you say it is? Make a profit, the bottom line. Isn't that it? That is it. It's all about the bottom line because we're driven by financial pragmatism. Decisions are all about money. Money, money, money. Now, can we consider as an alternative a biblical worldview? Would it surprise you to, to know that a biblical worldview is not all about money? Now, a biblical worldview addresses money, but it's not driven by money. So let's just do, do a few definitions here before we launch into our conversation. First of all, a worldview is a system of thought that drives all of life. You have a worldview. Everybody on this planet has a worldview. Every organization has a worldview. And that system of thought drives life. A biblical worldview is a system of thought defined by the Bible. Where I'm, I'm not looking at Confucius. I'm not deciding, you know, myself what is true. I'm looking to the Bible to tell me truth. What is reality? What is true about this universe? Business is a commercial activity involving the exchange of money for goods or services. This is from Encarta. And you can see this doesn't include bartering. You could, if you throw bartering in there, you, then you gotta, you gotta modify it a little bit. But it's basically that you have this exchange of goods and services and you have some medium that you're exchanging, whether it's bartering services or money. So that's what business is. A biblical worldview of business is commercial activity based on biblical, a biblical system of thought. Have you ever sat down and thought about, okay, I'm going to conduct my business based on a biblical system of thought? In other words, have you ever thought about reading the Bible as the handbook for business? Is that a new revelation for you? I mean, you, you don't hear that. What we do, when we go to business school, if you, how many of you have a business degree? Okay, what, what did you study in your business courses? Who are the experts that you look to? Keynesian Economics, Drucker, Deming. You know, today you might hear about Jim Collins, you know, and you hear best practices, big deal, best practices. Okay, well, that's, that's the world's way of looking at it. Have you ever had a course where the professor walked in and he held his Bible up and said, uh, this is the handbook for business. Everything we're going to study in this course will come from this book. Have you had that? No, I haven't seen it either. Um, I, I play a little game in one of my seminars with with uh, my participants, I have a, a Bible that I put a cover on it. And it, it's a white cover, and on the cover it says, The Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity by the Creator of the Universe. Is that a fair title? Okay? I mean, he created the universe, didn't he create all the rules? And if we're going to play in his playpen, don't we have to play by his rules? So I, I think it's a fair characterization. So I, I hold this book up and I cover up, you know, the by, so they can't see, you know, who's the author. And I say, okay, how many of you have studied business from this book? And they're all looking up there. I'll read the title again, The Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity. How many of you have read this book and say this book to find out how to do business? And I even had one guy bite on it one time. Yeah, I did. <laughs> of course, the reality is nobody has because it's not taught in business schools. So we want to get it. It's a paradigm shift here. Can we get it that God values business enough to tell us how to do business? 
And that's the real, the real rub here, because we tend to think Christianity is a spiritual activity. Therefore, business is a physical activity which has nothing to do with sp- the spiritual world. Isn't that what we think? I mean, you hear things like, well, God didn't really care about what you do to earn a living. He just cares about your soul. I grew up hearing that. I was in a major denomination here in the Dallas area. I heard that growing up. I walked into life thinking that business was largely about physical reality and church was spiritual reality and the two don't mix. So can we talk a little bit about about the concept of reality? What is reality? And here's a little picture that kind of illustrates something. What do you see that's going on with this picture that kind of confuses you? How is it that he's standing up straight at this angle? Looks like about a 30-degree angle to the perpendicular. How, how is he doing that? That's right. It's a little trick, isn't it? Because the reality is the car is on a slope, and he's vertical. But the picture was taken, so it looked like it's the opposite. So this illustrates that things are not always the, as they seem. And one of the things that seems to be true is that business is about, about a physical reality, And so we tend to assume that there's a separation between spiritual reality and physical reality. Now, a biblical worldview, I think, is just the opposite. And that is that the intangible trumps the tangible. That is, the spiritual reality drives the physical reality. Now, I want to give you a little illustration from Scripture. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. This is the story of the king of Syria. And the king of Syria is waging war with the king of Israel. And so they got this battle going on. And Elisha's down there in Israel telling the king of Israel everything that the king of Syria is going to do. You know, we recently had this situation where one of the pro football teams was stealing the signals from the other team. It's kind of like that, only it's legal. You know, what they were doing was illegal. Elisha's down there. The Holy Spirit's telling Elisha what's going to happen. Elisha's telling the king. So every time the king of Syria comes to make an attack, guess what? Israel knows exactly what to do. And so the king of Syria gets frustrated. He goes back home, and he gathers all of his his, uh, advisors around him, and he says, okay, who's the traitor? And, of course, there's not a traitor. And finally somebody speaks up and says, well, uh, king... um, there's not a traitor. What's going on is there's this guy down there in Israel called Elisha. He's reading your mail. Everything you say in your room, he hears. And then he tells the king of Israel, so there's no way you can beat him. So then here to me is the epitome of all stupidity. The king of Syria says, well, let's go get him. Like, wow, I could go get this guy. He could read by mail. And so here they go. They send this army down there, and they find out where he is, and they surround his house. And Elisha's servant comes out early in the morning to get the, get the milk or the bread or the paper or whatever, you know, the tablets, whatever they do in the morning. And he looks around and says, yikes, we're surrounded by this big army. Elisha's in there sipping his coffee. And he says, Lord, would you give my servant eyes to see reality? Because see, the servant only saw the physical presence of the army. And so when The Lord opened the eyes of the servant. What did the servant see? He saw this massive army of God around the Syrians. There was absolutely not a problem. Elisha had every right to be sitting there, cool and relaxed. There's not a threat. Because the spiritual reality trumps 
the physical reality. And then it goes on. I mean, Elisha didn't even call on the, the spiritual army. What did he do? He said, Lord, strike them blind. Isn't that cool? I mean, you got all these resources. Just pick one, pick whichever one you want to use to accomplish the task that God's given you. So the picture here is that biblical worldview of reality is fundamentally driven in the spiritual realm, and the physical realm is a manifestation of what's going on in the spiritual realm. Now, I'm going to illustrate that because that's a very hard concept. And, and I know it's probably your brain locking you right now, so let's, let's just look at some illustrations. And first, let's get a model here that will help us think this through. Okay? Spiritual reality is the root. Okay? It's the foundation. And spiritual reality is about your worldview, your assumption about God. It drives your philosophy of life, the value system you embrace, and the principles you practice. This is true of you. It's true of companies, organizations. By the way, this is true of churches, too. Do you know churches, a lot of churches don't have a biblical worldview? Would you be surprised to know that? How many of you are pastors? Any pastors? No pastors? Okay, usually we have some pastors. And I'm not trying to offend pastors, so any pastors that are listening to this, don't be offended. The challenge always for everybody is to gain a biblical worldview. Because that's the root of all of your actions. Now, what, look what happens with, with worldview. It drives your trends. It drives the legal climate you're in, the culture, the norms, the plans. Okay, These are the things then that drive your actions, the results, the words, the circumstances. Now, what do we see? When we look out there in the world that we live in, what do we see? We see from the top down, don't we? We see the events, the actions, the results, the circumstances, and we have to drill down and say, okay, what is it that's driving that? What are the plans or the norms of the culture that's driving it? And then, then what's driving that? And so unless you can get down to the root issue, which is the worldview driving whatever's going on, you don't really know what's happening. Now, I want to give you a picture of this. Um, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, over here on the left, you see this picture. This is a, uh, an artist's rendition of what this tower might have looked like. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but we know it got to some degree of completion. So that's what we see in the tangible. That's the physical. This construction project here. All right, now, and you see they did a lot of good things. You know, the Tower of Babel, you, you have success in life only to the degree that you line up with God's principles. I mean, that's the way it is. If you want to play golf... In a, in, a, in a tournament environment, you will have no success if you don't play by the rules. What happens if you don't play by the rules? You get DQ'd. What happens in football if you don't play by the rules? You get penalized. Okay, well, it's the same way here. If you don't play by God's rules, you're going to get penalized in business or running any, any organization. So they did some things right. They had proper leadership, technology. They had teams. They had clear vision. They had strategic planning. All these things are good. And because of God's common grace, they had success. Now, do you understand what common grace is? Common grace is grace that God gives to all human beings to, on some level, live in his creation and have a level of success. For example, why is it that you, you're going to go to lunch today, okay? How many of you are fearful of being poisoned at lunch? Anybody? Nobody's fearful of being poisoned? Why? Don't you believe in the depravity of man? Do you believe, you believe, raise your hand if you believe in depravity of man. Nobody believes, okay, you believe in depravity of man. Okay, good. All right, so man is totally depraved. Why in the world would you think you wouldn't get poisoned? The reason is because of common grace. 
God has given people, even unsaved people, the grace to do things like treat you well, to value your life, to practice the golden rule, to serve you. And so even unsaved people on a very low level can practice biblical principles and they can bless others. And so that, that's the reason they had this success was common grace. But guess what? In the end, it failed. The project gets judged. Now, why is that? Well, it's very simple. They had the spiritual root was wrong. They sought to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a monument for themselves. It was all about them. They were worshiping themselves. They were their own God. And God is a jealous God. You worship anybody else but him and you will get judged. And so that's what happened with it. So it's an illustration of how the spiritual reality worked through the planning to the tangible results and eventually brought judgment. Now, let me just give you some other... I'm going to to talk about Beyond Babel a little bit later. But let me give you some other illustrations here to help you. Let me give you some case studies. These case studies are fascinating when you get to looking at them. And you begin to use this analysis tool. I've got three of them here I want to do. Let's do the, the second one first. I'm, uh, I'm at a conference about a year ago, and this manager came to me and says, um, can I talk to you? I said, sure. I happen to be having a very tight schedule, and I was determined to go to the gym. So I said, I'm going to go to the gym at 3 o'clock. I'm going to work out for an hour. You can come talk to me in the gym. So he came, and we, we kind of worked out together, and then he, we started talking. And I said, okay, what is the greatest problem you have at work? And he says, uh, this stack of paper on my desk. Stack of paper on your desk? He said, yeah, that's my biggest problem. Why, why is that a problem? He says, well, it needs to be processed. I said, why haven't you processed it? Well, I, I haven't had time. Well, why haven't you had time? I, well, I just got too many other things to do. I said, do you have staff? Yeah, I got staff. I said, why don't you train your staff? Well, because then they wouldn't need me. Why, why is that important? He said, well, because I, I need my paycheck. And so, okay, so you need your paycheck. Why do you need your paycheck? Well, i got to pay my bills. And I said, well, who's your provider? Well, well, God said, so doesn't sound like it. You see, the really reality of what was going on here is the physical that you saw was a stack of paper that needed to be processed and was impairing the organization because it wasn't being processed. It was a reflection of, of thinking in him and planning in him to protect his job. See, he had a game plan. I'm going to protect my job. That's, that's level. And the game plan is rooted in bad theology. The theology was, i got to protect myself because God's not going to take care of me. God's really not my provider. So you see how bad theology created a bad plan, which created bad results. You see the trend? See how that works? Okay, there's this company. Guy calls me up. He says, uh, been through a major reorganization. I had six locations, and competition came in and started just eating me alive. And I've shrunk down to one. I've burned all my capital. I've lost my credit line. i got to buy inventory. The spring's coming, and I don't have any money. I need you to recapitalize my business. Now, what did I say to him? Here's what I said. Tell me about your marriage. Now, why did I say that? Because money is a symptom. Money is not a root issue. Money is way up here. Money is circumstances, results, or the lack of. So I'm trying to find out what's driving this thing. I'm looking for an angle to get to here. So I said, tell me about your marriage. Now, why do you? Want, why would it marriage might give me a clue? Because whatever you're doing in your marriage, you're doing in your business. Whatever you're doing in your business, you're doing in your marriage. Okay. Now, what do you think? He, what do you think he said to me when I said, "Tell me about your marriage"? 
What? Yeah, what difference does that make? What's this got to do with my problem? I have a money problem. I need, I need capital. Tell me how to do capital. I need you to help me restructure my business. I said, look, here's the deal. Money is a symptom. It's not a root issue. There's something that's driving this reality that is manifested by this supposed need of money. So I'm trying to get, find an angle to find it. So tell me about your marriage. Well, the conversation did eventually get to the marriage, and we did get the wife in the conversation. And lo and behold, you know what I find out? He's not listening to his wife. The wife has got all these issues going on with the children. He's ignoring them because he's focused on the business. Okay. Now, if you're not listening to your wife, who else are you not listening to? You're not listening to God. You see that reality? I mean, does that blow you away? I mean, when you begin to think at a truly the root issue level, it is absolutely mind-blowing how you begin to solve problems because you get to the real roots. Now, guess what happens? So we got down to this root issue of not listening to his wife, and I said, look, here's what you need to do. You're at your, you're at your office. Your wife's at home. I said, you need to hang up with me and go home, sit down with your wife, and you guys pray through this problem with the kids, and you agree on how you're going to solve that problem. And they both said, okay, we're going to do that. Then I asked the wife, I said, are you praying for the business? And she said, no. And the reason she wasn't praying for the business is because of all the issues with the kids. She's distracted. I said, do you believe the truth that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers? She said, yeah. Okay, you believe it's true in your life? Yes. Is it true in your business? And there's this pause. Like, gee, I've never thought about it in the business. I said, well, why wouldn't it be true in business? Why would we... Take that truth and we restrict it to your personal life. The scripture doesn't do that. So this has got to be reality in your business. There's spiritual warfare going on in your business. How do you fight spiritual warfare? Well, you have the armor of God, and after you go through the armor of God, what does it say next? Well, you guys know this. Pray. Pray. There's not any prayer going on for this business, so the enemy is having a heyday. He's got access to this business. He's tearing it apart. I said, you start praying. I said... To the lady, I said, will you commit to pray? And I modeled for her. Here's, here's a prayer that you could pray. Model for her how to pray for the business. She, and they started praying that day. Okay, the next day, they, he, he goes into work, goes in, walks in the door, 8 o'clock. And first thing that happens to him, okay, he, I thought he was going to call me first thing, but he didn't. Because the first thing that happened to him was somebody walked to him and said, hey, boss, can I talk to you? He said, well, sure, sure. What do you want to talk about? And uh, he said, well... Um, you know, I know we need inventory, and I know we lost a credit line, and I just sold this real estate up here, and I've got some extra money. Would you like to borrow it? And so, right there, without me ever having to tell him how to recapitalize his business, God provided him the resources to buy his inventory. He was absolutely blown away. Does that not blow you away? I mean, it, it, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, in jest, I get, I get to talking to God and say, God, I'm a business consultant. I'm supposed to fix that problem. And you have me doing marriage counseling, and then you fix his business problems. I said, there's nothing wrong with this picture. But, but that's, that's the reality of God. You know, as we begin to get our personal life in order, and we get our family life in order, then the business life begins to get in order. And I, my thesis is, as that begins to happen, you know what's going to happen in the church? The church is going to begin to get in order. Would you guys agree the church has got some big problems? We've got some major problems, and one of them is we don't understand this reality right here, that what's driving all of reality 
uh, is the, the worldview of the church. I was, just another story, I was in California about a year ago to uh, meet with some clients and uh, arrived, arrived pretty late and the client said, hey, I wanna, we're going to meet for dinner. I said, great, we'll meet for dinner. He said, but I, I'm on this worship team, there's a pastor's conference here, and uh, why don't you just come by the church, and uh, and when I get through, we'll go to have dinner together. I said, fine. So I, I, I drive by, it's about 8 o'clock, I go in the back of the church and sit down, trying to be inconspicuous, because I know a lot of these people in, in this conference, so I didn't want to create any stir or anything. So I'm just listening, and one of the first guys that comes up there is a guy, a good friend of mine, a guy that I know. He gets up there and says, okay, how many of you guys got money problems? What do you think happened? Bam! Straight up. Virtually every hand in the room. Now, what do you think is happening to me? Everything within me is grabbing the bottom of the chair. Because I'm wanting to go straight through the ceiling. And why am I wanting to go through straight through the ceiling? Because of this. Because money is never really a problem. It's a symptom. You have to drill down to what's going on here. Do you believe Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then what? What are all these things? Your needs. Food, clothing, shelter. The things you think you need money for. God says, I will take care of that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So I, I wanted to jump right out of my chair and say, you guys believe Matthew 6.33? then why are you talking about money? Why don't you talk about alignment? Why don't you talk about what is the kingdom of God and how do I line up with it and what is the righteousness of God and how do I do it? And when you do that, God God will open up the storehouse to provide because He funds His will. And so when we begin to get that worldview in us, and now it's going to change how we think and how we plan and our norms, our culture, and then it will change our results. So... You see this? I mean, this is really fundamental to a biblical worldview of business. You have to understand what's really driving your business is not whether you made a profit. It is what's down here, your philosophy, values, and principles. You get this, you get this lined up with God, you won't have to worry about much of the rest. It'll all fall in order. Okay, so you want to build an organization biblically? Would you all like to do that? Would you like to know how to do that? You know, one of the things that I'm running into um, in traveling around and teaching this is there are a lot of people teaching on this, but nobody's teaching a model. Have you found a model? Okay. Well, I'm teaching a model. Okay. And the model is in my book. The book is called Beyond Babel, and it's available at the bookstore. And the reason it's called Beyond Babel is this. What you had at the Tower of Babel was a level of success. It's what the world can do. Taking the best of their understanding of God's principles and doing the best they can with common grace to practice those principles, they can do things. Let me illustrate this. 20 years ago, the Chinese decided to do a research project. And the question was this. Why is the United States the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world? Does everybody agree it is? Does everybody agree it is? Yeah, we are the most powerful and prosperous. Why? Why is that true? The Chinese, who are atheists, they start researching. And at the end of the research project, they said this. We have a, come to a very clear conclusion. 
We have looked at your economy. We have looked at your politics, your geography, your natural resources. We've looked at everything that could account for your prosperity and your power. And we've concluded, without any doubt in our mind, there is one reason why you are the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world. You know what they concluded? It's because of your Christian principles and values. The Chinese get it. You know, it was such a powerful statement that the president of China back then, which I think was about six or seven years ago, he looked at that research. And do you know what he said? He said, I am very tempted to make Christianity the national religion. Now, why would he be tempted to do that? Only one reason. That is the prosperity that he saw Christianity brought. You look at any other culture you want. You look at India. You look at China. You look at Japan. Why is Japan doing well? Anybody know? Because we went over there after World War II and we gave them biblical principles. That's right. That's why they're doing well. Why is India not doing well? Because they have not embraced biblical principles. Wherever you go, look and see the level of embrace of a biblical worldview is the level of success and prosperity of that country. So we need to learn to build biblically. And so I want to give you a model to begin to build with. This is the Beyond Babel model. The foundation of the model is a biblical worldview, biblical philosophy, values, and principles. You have got to have that or you will never realize your potential. You hear me? You, if you want to do all that God created you to do, you have got to get very grounded in biblical thinking. The next thing is you have to have an equally yoked leadership team. And I can tell you my experience going into companies, this is a huge problem. A huge problem. There's all, I almost never find an equally yoked leadership team. Which means if you don't have an equally yoked leadership team, you will never get strategic. You will never discern what it is that God wants to do well. You will always be making a bunch of missteps. And if you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do well, you're certainly not going to execute it well. And if you're not going to execute it well, you're not going to be have customers that are very happy with you. I had a friend send me an article yesterday. You all may have seen this. This was about uh, Comcast up in, uh, I think, Washington, D.C., and a lady was having trouble with her service. You see that? Yeah, the hammer story. The, the hammer story. So she, uh, she goes over to their office. I think they had, uh, they had cut off her service and they hadn't fixed it. There's a variety of things that went on. And she went over to their office, and she waited for several hours, and nobody would, would talk to her. The manager would, was, was promised the manager would come out. He never came out. So she went over. The, she went left. This was on a Friday. The weekend, she stews about it, and she comes back on Monday with a hammer. And she tears into that office, hitting everything, keyboards, uh, displays, computers, everything. And, of course, the police came and got her. But what was that? That was frustration with lousy customer service. See, in a biblical model, you have got to deliver great products. And the validation is always by the customer. One of the things I see over and over with CEOs, how many of you are CEOs? Any of you all CEOs? You got one CEO? Here's a tendency I see with CEOs, and that is they tend to live in la-la land. And I'm not saying you do, but I'm saying I see it a lot. And when I go and ask them, I said, tell me about what your customers say about you. Oh, they think we're great. Well, how do you know? Well, I, I just know. You know well, have you, have you done anything to validate that? Have you talked to them? Have you done some survey? Well, we, we do a little bit of that, but, you know, not a lot. So I said, you're living based on a perception that you've created for yourself. 
that's not been validated. So we've got to learn to let customers tell us reality about how we're delivering. So this is a model. If you use this model faithfully, you will build an organization built on biblical thinking, and you will achieve excellence, I would submit to you, at levels we haven't even seen yet. Today, what we're focusing on is this foundation, this biblical worldview. We've got to learn to think biblically about our businesses. Now, in a biblical worldview, I, I divide it up into three elements. You have a philosophy element, values, and principles. And you see how they're connected. The foundation is your philosophy or your worldview. The values are the expression of your worldview. The principles are why you practice it. And your philosophy or your worldview is rooted in your assumption about God. You know, one of the, one of the things that's going around our country today that is absolutely a, a lie is the, is the labeling of Christians as people of faith. Now, why is that a lie? The reason it's a lie is the implication is, if you're not a Christian, you're not a person of faith. Everybody is a person of faith. Because everybody starts with their life, the foundation of their whole life is based on one question. And that is, who is God to you? You've got to answer that question. Now, most people never even ask it, don't even know they have to answer it, but they answer it implicitly. And so whatever your answer is to the God question, that's going to drive your worldview. That's going to drive your value system, and that's going to drive your principles. And I'm going to show you some examples of that in just a second. The values are simply the incarnation. That is, they, this is how you, these are the things that you hold dear to you, that's important to you. For example, why would truth be important to you? The only reason truth would be important to you is you have a worldview that values truth. It says, I want to live in truth. I want to know truth. I want to dwell in truth. And so it, value systems always come out of your worldview. And then principles. These are the things you practice. These are the things you live by. These incarnate your, your, your values. For example, let's say that, that you value love, the Christian value of love. How do you practice love? Well, the golden rule. You treat others the way you want to be treated. That's a practice. The value is love. And that's rooted in a biblical philosophy of life. So you see how that works. Let me give you some more illustrations that will help you here. If your worldview is Allah is God, then you value deception. And you express it by deceiving non-Muslims. Now, now, why is that true? Well, let me just share with you. I was in a, a lecture about a year ago, and uh, there was an expert in, in uh, Islam there lecturing. And he shared a story that explained this to me. I'd never heard this story before. I assume it's true. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an Islam expert, so I'm taking this guy's word for it. So I'm giving you that caveat. But he said there was this story about, about Muhammad, and he was chased by his enemies. And supposedly he found a cave. And this cave had a bunch of spider webs on the front of the cave. And he was able to sneak past the spider webs and get into the cave. And when the, when the enemies came by, they looked at the cave and the spider webs, and they couldn't, they couldn't see that the spider webs had been disturbed. So they assumed there was nobody in the cave, and they ran on by. And so the conclusion of the Muslims was that God used deception to protect Muhammad. Therefore, God values deception, particularly relative to your enemies. So that is part of their value system. So you see how their, their belief in Allah, which drives a value, which drives in an operating practice of deception. All right, how about this one? If your worldview is cows or God, then what is that? That's Hinduism, isn't it? Okay, those of you who have been around India at all, then what happens is cows are objects of worship, and you express it by stopping for cows. 
If you go to India and you've been there any length of time, you've probably had been on a train or a, a, an airplane or a car, and all of a sudden everything stops. Okay, and you just sit, you're just sitting there. You say, "What's going on here?" And it may be it may be ten minutes, it may be an hour, two hours. Well, what's happened is a cow, as a cow has walked on the road or the runway or the track or whatever it is, and everything now stoppy, waiting for the cow. And there's no such thing as shoo the cow off, because cows are objects of worship. So that's how idolatry brings in inefficiency into organizations. How about this one? If your worldview is I am God, what is that? That's that's humanism, isn't it? That's modern humanism. I am God. Everybody's a God to themselves. If that's your worldview, then you value relativism and you express it by disdain for authority. That's largely what's happening in our population today. Hey, have you have you guys noticed that? Um, uh, this, there's a great conflict generally in, in companies today between management and, and labor. Have you noticed that? Here's what's going on. Corporations, if you go out and read these new um, statements of codes of conduct and things like that that all these corporations are putting out there after you know what's happened the last 10 years with WorldCom and Enron and all that, all these guys are publishing these value statements. Have you ever looked at those value statements? Absolutely. They're all biblical. It's unbelievable. You look at that. Wow, this is great stuff. You know, you could tie Bible verse after Bible verse to them. It's real easy. And you say, wow, that's what they're looking for. And now look at who they're hiring, and they require everybody in their company to comply with this code of conduct, and they're hiring humanists who disdain authority. You see the setup for conflict? This is, this is huge. This is rooted in, systemically in business today is this internal conflict on the worldview level that's manifested itself in inefficiency, ineffectiveness, conflict, all this stuff going on. If your worldview is God is whimsical, you know where, where that comes from? Africa. This is very common in Africa. God is whimsical. He is, you know, just does what he wants to do. He, you know, we don't know his rules and his values and how he does things. He just does them whenever he wants to do them. But if that is your, your worldview, God's whimsical, then what do you do? You do things like this. Appeasement, express it by the practices such as human sacrifice. You see how your worldview drives your values and drives your principles, what you do in life. Now, here, let me give you an illustration of a biblical worldview. So let's say that you value God as love. Then you would practice love through the golden rule. You embrace love as a value, practice it by practicing the golden rule. How about this? If your worldview is God created everyone for a purpose, do you believe that? Okay. Corporate America does not believe that. Do you understand? And you'll hear hints of this. Corporate America believes that this is generally is believes that people are fungible. You know what fungible means? They're interchangeable. There's really not much difference. And because of the theory of evolution, we believe that there's really no real purpose to man. That's generally what most people believe. Now, the atheists are real articulate about it. Most of us that are not, you know, kind of lukewarm, you know, we just don't even think about it. We just kind of take it on. But if you really practice the belief that God created everyone for a purpose, then guess what? The key to finding a person for your company is finding the right person. It's not any person. It is the right person. It's the person that God has ordained to be in your organization. Now, this is a brain lock. Over and over again, I see this with my clients. It's such a brain lock because we are so scared in how we run our organizations. We're scared because we know we don't really know what we're doing. 
And we really don't know what's going to happen next. And we know there's huge risk out there. And so we tend to grab a hold of people. If we find any sense of success with them, we grab them and hold them tight. We don't think about how is it that, is this guy really supposed to be here? Or this lady supposed to be here? And how can I bless them? How can I find their, help them find their destiny? But if we have a biblical worldview, it's all about helping people find their destiny. And guess what? When you help start helping people find their destiny, what do you think God is going to do for you? What's sowing and reaping say? If I sow destiny into you, what am I going to reap? I'm going to reap destiny in me. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing business owners have the courage to say, okay, I'm going to take all my management team. I'm going to run them through. I have a strategic life alignment series, which is all about how do you find your destiny. I'm going to run through that seminar, and I'm going to hands off wherever God wants them to go. I'm going to support them. I'm going to pay them to go through the seminar. I'm going to pay them to get coached. I'm going to pay them to help get wherever they need to be. I've actually got a client that's doing that right now. He started out with about an eight-man management team, and within six months of going through the seminar, he's down to four. Okay. Now, most people, what most people do with that? Panic. This isn't working. But no. He said, no, no, we're doing the right thing. So what, you know what he did? He paid for the four remaining to go through the seminar again. And then he paid me to come out there and coach them. And now we're down to two. And we're not even sure those two are supposed to be there. But, you know, all of, through all of this, the business has not declined. And some way or another, he's been able to do everything. And guess what? His profits are up. Okay? And then out of the blue, guess what? God drops two guys in his laps. He had no idea we're out there. no idea that they were interested. And they are perfect fits for what he needs. It's like, wow, how did this happen? This is the mystery of the kingdom. When you begin to live God's principles in your business, regardless of what it looks like in the tangible, you're just being obedient to the Word of God. You're releasing blessing into your organization. Okay, if your worldview is God is our ultimate boss, then what do you value? If you're gonna, you gotta present your work product to God. Okay, God, I make this little widget right here. I'm gonna present it to you. What are you gonna do? What, what happens when the President of the United States goes anywhere? There's an advanced team that shows up, and we get everything in order, right? Everything is clean, neat, organized, painted, put in place. Everything is perfect, right? That's for the president. And all the airlines stop. Yeah, all the airlines stop. But, but see, the point is, if you're going to present something to a person of authority and respect, it's going to be the best. And so if you really believe that God's your ultimate boss, you're going to be excellent at what you do. And you're going to express it by continuously growing and improving. You're going to have cultures of continuous growth. If your worldview is God wants increase, then what are you going to do? This is Luke 19, by the way. This is where you, Luke 19 tells us God values the profit. If he wants increase, then you better be profitable. You're, the only way you're going to be profitable is by being strategic and executing well. It gets back to the Beyond Babel model. Okay, so does everybody get it that spiritual reality is the driving reality? If you get nothing else from this, get this. Spiritual reality drives everything. And when you get spiritual reality in order and get it lined up with God, then that's going to change your tangible results. A couple more points. Here's the creation mandate. Why did God, who is a spirit being, create this physical universe? And all of you recognize this picture from the moon looking at the earth. Why did God do this? Why did he create man? Why are we here? Now, when I was growing up in a denominational church, I thought the reason I was here was to evangelize. That's what I was told. That was an important thing. We need to get souls saved. 
And then I got thinking about, okay, when you get souls saved, so maybe the key, so it sounds like the key is populating heaven. So maybe what we need to do is have these massive evangelistic campaigns, and as people come forward and accept Christ, we take them over into a side room, and we validate, okay, you've really accepted Christ? Good, shoot him. Boom. He's going to heaven. All right, next. And so we just have this little conveyor belt of populating heaven. And then I got thinking, is that what Scripture has to say? As I began looking at what Scripture, what I found was Scripture says something else. Scripture says that God made man to rule his creation. And he said, you rule my creation in two ways. You multiply, you grow, and you master it. That's how we rule. And so what relationship does business have all, have all this? You know, I, I grew up with the idea that business really had no redeeming value other than to make to create money to pay for my living expenses and so I could tithe. And that was the only redemptive value of business. I, I did not see business in connection to anything else. But the reality is, is not business a way to facilitate the creation mandate? Isn't that what it is? It's a way to multiply and master God's creation. It's a way to bring the kingdom of God and expand the kingdom of God. We talk about this term business as missions, you know, which I, you know, there's so many people defining it in different ways. I don't even like to use the term now. I'd rather talk about, let's, you know, how do we get the kingdom of God into our culture? And the way we get it into our culture is we've got to get, get biblical worldview in us, in our families, get it into our churches, get it into our businesses. And as we do that, what we've done is leavened the lump. And as we know, the principle is we leaven the lump, it works through the whole lump. And so we need to recognize that business is a tool to fulfill a mandate we have from God, and that is to master his creation. Now, another principle that we need to understand about a biblical worldview is how it relates to the will of God. Now, this, this verse here, this text here, I find is a brain lock for most people, and I don't have enough time to unpack it for you, so we're going to do it very quickly, so try to, try to hold on here. But this is right out of James. It says this, James 4, 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Now that sounds like a strategic plan, doesn't it? Somebody's got a game plan. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Fort Worth, and we're going to open up a branch office, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to call on these people, we're going to do business and make money. That's what a strategic plan looks like. So that's what he's saying here. Now look how, look how James responds to this. Listen, you guys. Why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, so he basically puts us in our proper perspective real quickly, saying, hey, who are you? Who are you to presume to know what to do? Now, at this point, is he telling them not to plan? He's not telling them not to plan. That's why a lot of people immediately think, well, that's why I don't plan. There's no reason to plan because, hey, who am I? You know, I'm just going to be led by the Spirit. Okay, it's like I can be loosey-goosey. But that's not what he says. Look what he says this. He says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. I'm taking my plan that we sought God to develop, and I'm laying it on the altar, and I'm saying, if it's the Lord's will, we will go to Fort Worth, and we will do this or that. Or we will go to Oklahoma City, or we'll go to California, or New Mexico, or wherever you're going to go. But the whole point is to lay it on the altar of the Lord's will, which means that business is inherently a spiritual activity of seeking the will of God. 
Is that just, okay, I know that went just right past you. Because we don't think that way. We think business is about physical reality. It's about making money. You know, it's about enduring. It's, it's kind of like torture, like, you know, it's kind of God, God's penalty box. I'm not good enough to be a pastor, so I've got to go be in business. That's our mindset. We don't recognize that it's every bit as valid a call and every bit as important to God as anything else that's being done on this planet. Because it's all about discerning the will of God. So if it is the will of God, we will, we will do this or that. We will go to this city, whatever, do whatever God wants us to do. Now look at this, the end of the verse. Now, as it is, you boast and brag. How do we boast and brag? We boast and brag when we do not submit our plans to the will of God. That's how we boast and brag. How many of you have done strategic planning? Okay. At the end of your strategic planning, did you have a prayer meeting? Did you sit down? Did you do it? Good. You sit down. You present it to God and say, Lord, we present this to you. We ask that you would clarify what we have missed. Correct the thing, the errors that we've made. We commit this to you. We are here to be your servants to execute your plan. But you recognize it's all about the will of God and doing the will of God. If you don't do that, you're boasting and bragging. And then he says this, all such boasting is evil. And you think, oh my goodness, how many plans out there are evil? Contrary to the purpose and nature of God. Now, how is it that we go about discerning the will of God? Now, here's a little graphic that I like to use. I call this the rebellion meter. Okay? And everybody is somewhere on the rebellion meter. Now, you're either over here with Jesus and you're surrendered, in which case you're, you're a zero, effectively, in terms of self. Okay? In reality, you have, you've released the full potential of your life there. Or you're over here in a ten in your rebellion and you're siding with Satan. Okay? And all of us are somewhere in this spectrum. So the people on this side are basically people living according to the flesh. And their wisdom and knowledge is limited to general revelation, which is what you, what the tangible world that we live in. That's general revelation. What is the revelation that God generally gives people? Have you noticed that most people value truth, whether they're saved or not? Have you noticed that? You know, most people don't like to be lied to. Now, why is that? Well, it's because God has put in us a conscience. And he's given us a bias toward his principles. So truth is something valued pretty much by everybody. So whether you're saved or not, that's, that's, that's a, a part of general revelation. And then we have the reality of common grace that enables us to, to, on a low level, practice walking in truth. And so that's where you are if you're on this side. And your motive basically is all about making money. This is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 26. The laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. In fact, it's interesting. There are three levels of workers, um, and it's very interesting to analyze companies based on these categories. The most basic level is, is just working for, for provision. I call these M&M people, me and money. It's all about me and money. There's M&M people. Most workers are M&M people. The next level of worker is a principled worker. You know, it's, it's, it's not so much about the money. It's really I want to do it, I want to do it right. Okay? And there's very few people at that level. But, you know, principal workers will also provide for their needs. So you have provision, you have principal, and then the third level is the power of the Holy Spirit. The person has the power of the Holy Spirit, he walks in principle and he provides, but he walks in the power of the Holy Spirit too. So he's got all three. And so, basically, the more you get over here on this side of the meter, then you have an opportunity to be a third level worker. 
the guys kind of maybe up in this area are probably second level workers. Then everybody over here, they're just working for money. It's just me and money. And that make you feel good to know most of your products and services are provided by people and they just care about their money. I mean, that gives you a pause to think. Okay, well, so this side, does everybody agree this is not a, not a good place to try to get workers? Okay, what about this side? Suppose that we say we want disciples. We want people who are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, why would we want them? Well, one of the key reasons is their source of wisdom and knowledge is broader. Look at what they have. They have not only general revelation, they have special revelation, and they have specific revelation. Now, there's three sources of revelation. General revelation is the revelation we all have in creation. Special revelation is this book, which we're told we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate to us. That's why a lot of people can pick up this book and get nothing out of it. Because if you don't have illumination, you're probably not going to get much. And then you have specific revelation. Now, that's my own term I use. It, you see specific revelation in examples like when David's being attacked by the Philistines. And he goes to the Lord and says, Lord, what do I do about the Philistines? And, and the Lord says, well, David, here's what I want you to do this time. Instead of attacking them on the front, I want you to go behind them and wait in the trees. And wait till the trees at the top rustle. And when, they, when you hear them rustling at the top, attack. Have you ever thought about that as a strategy? Can you imagine that telling that the guys, okay, guys, we're going behind them. We're going to sit real quietly. We're going to wait for the, the leaves to rustle. And we're going to attack. They're going to say, David, are you nuts? Well, now what you'd say, David, are you nuts? No, what David's saying, I have sought the Lord. I have specific revelation on the tactic to use. See, God gives us specific revelation in specific situations. Peter is in jail. He's between two, two guys. This is Acts, uh, Acts 12. He's between two guards. He's got chains on each arms. Two guards, one on either side. He's in a room. It's doors closed. He's got guards outside. And that's inside a guarded compound with a big iron gate. Okay? It's midnight. He's sitting there. I'm sure he's cold and hungry and thirsty. And here comes an angel. And the angel says, get up. What, what, do, you, what do you think he did? Well, you know, gee, i got these chains here. I mean, I, look at these people. No. He proceeds to start to get up. And what happens? The chains fall off. Because when God gives you specific revelation, even though the circumstances don't look like it's going to work, he makes provision. Peter? You want to walk on water? Hey, have at it. Now, now think about that. When, I mean, that whole incident with Peter walking on water to me is hilarious. I mean, here you are. You're in a storm. you got this boat. It's in the middle of the night, probably 3 or 4 in the morning, and you're blurry-eyed. And here you see this thing walking across the, the water. And we say, what's going on here? And so Peter looks at it and says, who, who are you? Well, I'm Jesus. Well, what if it's you? Bid me to walk on the water. Now, it's storming. Okay, you're in the middle of this ocean, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter jumps out of the boat. Now, if it had been me, I'd say, uh, is, anybody have a life, life preserver? A rope? Something? Hey, guys, if this doesn't work, would you pull me back in? No. He jumped out there. And that's how we've got to learn to live by faith, that when God gives you a specific revelation to do something, there's provision to do it. And so that's the wonderful thing about disciples is they have communion with God. You know, the proverb says that if you disdain the law of God, then God doesn't listen to you. Did you know that? Which means over here in the rebellion side, 
There's not any regard for the law of God. There's no communion with the Father. There's no strategic planning between me and the Father on this side. But I'm over here. I'm a submitted, surrendered disciple. And now I'm in communion with the Father and I'm getting specific strategies. Who do you think's got the advantage? There's no doubt. This is where you want to be hiring people. You hire people over here, you are very limited in what they can do. Furthermore, this side of the equation, these people understand what the real motivation is. It's not so much about money, although they will be provided for. The real agenda here is we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, most of us read that verse out of Ephesians 2.10, and we compartmentalize that into church. Those good works are evangelism or, you know, missionary work or maybe going to build an orphanage in Mexico. That word for work there is ergon. It's a very broad term in the, in the Greek. It means all kinds of work. Any kind of work would fall into that category. He's saying, we are God's workmanship created for good works of all types. Did you know, do you believe God ordained Jesus to be a carpenter? Was that an accident? Just a mistake? An incidental part of his life that has no significance? Or was that part of what God created him to do? See, when you begin to get it, that God's into everything. Because he created it all and called it good and he's charged us to rule, then we get it that the game is doing his will in whatever God has charged you to do. I wish I could talk, had time to talk to you about what a kingdom cab driver looks like. But I've seen a picture of it. It's unbelievable what a kingdom cab driver looks like. But we've, I'm sorry, we're short on time. So let me, let me draw this to a conclusion by saying this. True disciples are the best discerners of the will of God. If business is a spiritual activity of discerning the will of God, I need people that can hear God and will obey God. I need disciples. Now, so whenever you guys go out to hire people, how many of you think this way? Think about hiring disciples. Well, you do. That's good. Several, several of you do. That's good. One of the principles that in my book is the principle of C4. C4 are the four criteria that God used to hire people to build the tabernacle. It's a great tool to help you discern who to hire. And you'll be more likely to hire disciples than you will people in rebellion. Okay, just a quick takeaway here. I'm going to give you six key points. I'm sorry I should have come up with seven, but I just had six, so forgive me here. The Bible is God's written revelation and handbook. It's a handbook for all of life, including business. Secondly, physical reality is driven by spiritual reality. If you get spiritual reality right in your life, and you get it right in your company by virtue of the worldview that you embrace, then your physical results are going to blow you away. Spiritual reality is defined by one's assumption about God. In other words, the starting point for everybody is who is God to you? Business is a tool to fulfill the creation mandate. There is a divine reason for business. It doesn't just exist. It exists to enable us to do what God created us to do. Business is about discerning the will of God. At the, at the most fundamental level, business is a spiritual activity. It's ever been as significant spiritually as running a church, running a ministry, running anything. It's about discerning the will of God and doing it. And finally, the best people for discerning the will of God are those engaged in being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. May the Lord give you grace to walk in a biblical worldview of business. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. The privilege of, of, of wrestling with what it is to walk in a biblical worldview. Lord, give us grace to see it in a new level, to see the depths of this reality and begin to walk out this reality. Give us the grace to be true problem solvers who see problems at their very root and recognize that if you don't change the root, you don't change the results. So, Lord, give us grace to do that well. So, Father, we commit ourselves as your servants to do your will, to be those that are kingdom people in whatever venue you send us. So we we thank you, Lord, for your grace and favor in our life and commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.